thank you very much for joining us on AU Manufacturing Conversations. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. A pleasure. So first question as always is how did you get here and what do you make? Yeah, so our company is called Esper Satellite Imagery. We're building sensors that can take images of the Earth from space, and then we're utilizing that to drive a lot of chemical compositions for a lot of climate metrics out of the, that imagery data that we collect. And we essentially started off as a university hackathon project. Um, mm. Me and my co-founder, we met in our second year of university. We were very much tech nerds. We weren't really like into space per se, but we were like, hey, here's a hackathon coming up, which was the UniHack 2019, if I remember. And we were like, hey, let's just you know go to this and see what happens. And together, that was our third hackathon, and we ended up winning it. Since then, we sort of snowballed into what it is today. And it, we started with a slightly different idea. It was still a space idea, but now we've been focusing on Earth observation for the past three years and with the stuff that we were building. I read somewhere, I think I actually listened to another podcast and it mentioned that you'd got a diploma from uh, Monash, I believe, and, and then went on to study space as you are now nearly finished with um, at RMIT. Were you sort of, uh, were you focused on electronic engineering or something of that kind at around about the hackathon era? Yeah, definitely. So around the hackathon time, so I was still at Monash. I was doing mechatronics engineering at Monash at that point. And that's when we just started working on the space project. And I was like, hmm, I probably need a skill set that's more relevant to this, I guess, this remote sensing slash space system side. That's when I switched over to RMIT and I'm just maybe a couple of weeks away from finishing up my space science degree. It's kind of a, a hacky question. It's like the kid who meets a band and says, so where did your band name come from? I'm going to be that hacky kid and ask, um, where did the company name come from? What does Esper stand for? Is it a family name or a acronym or something else? Yeah, so initially we were called Saturn Space. So we went doing the hackathon time and maybe like at least a year after that we were we were sticking with the name Saturn Space. That but as we sort of post started focusing on I guess the technology that we're building, hyperspectral. Um, we were like, all right, we probably need something more relevant rather than just something that's very generic as some space for like a space company. So we sort of ended up on Esper because Esper is a sort of, sort of long form for ESP, which stands for Extra Sensory Perception, uh, um, right. which is like a pop culture term for psychics. When you're watching a movie and you hear Esper, they're probably talking about a psychic. And that's like a nod to the tech we're building because we're seeing beyond what normal people can see or what normal cameras can see. You mentioned hyperspectral imagery. Uh, tell me a bit about the, the niche you're in, how you're applying hyperspectral imagery. Uh, what are you doing? You're making lenses, assembling electronics, subsystems, cameras, satellites? Sure. So within hyperspectral, I guess, you know, the basic concept is we're capturing light and hundreds of wavelengths, and then we're using that to derive chemical compositions. Because every chemical, every compound reflects and absorbs light differently. Our specific focus on that is the actual camera itself. So everything from the mechanical side, the spectrometer uh, and the lens, uh, basically all the optics that we're building, including the lenses, including the actual camera, and some of the electronic side as well, which, where it comes with the sensors and then a lot of the computing uh, that goes along with that. So we're we basically, you know, we all encompass into the word payload, essentially. So we're focused on building that payload, and then we're partnering with different companies to basically buy space on their satellites to get our sensors up into orbit. You mentioned something of the very early days with the, the hackathon, and you also mentioned that you, you're doing something a little different now. Tell me about, you know, what you're doing now. Was there a eureka moment where you thought, oh, wow, the world really needs this? 
back when we were still sat in space at the hackathon, we were essentially building an AI that could design a satellite payload. Mostly around that, we were focusing on a lot of data problems that we saw in the industry, or especially like in terms of satellite data. That's why we were focusing on that end. But we eventually very quickly realized people didn't really want to buy that because satellite payloads are very specialized things that are very custom, and it's not something that an AI could, you know, I guess commoditize or design very quickly. That's how we sort of we were like, hey, we're still focusing on a data problem from space. So what niche is there that we can, you know, refocus our efforts on and pivot into? That's how we got into Earth observation, and within that, we saw, hey, hyperspectral is a cool piece of technology where there's not a whole lot of work done, especially in like the space domain. And that's where we thought we can apply our skills the best, and that's how we started rolling with with that, and how we found success with it. And yeah, now our focus is on hyperspectral, but even with that, we're going more deeper into focusing on the application side of things in terms of just collecting data for climate metrics, so being able to track carbon sequestration in agricultural soil, but then also being able to track emissions of methane and even carbon dioxide itself, and then also looking at a lot of operational sustainability across mining and agriculture. So yeah, those are some of the things that we started focusing on. I see. The hyperspectral uh, imaging has been around a little while. I understand it comes with its challenges, including um, just producing a, an awful lot of data that you have to sift through and make useful. But I, I yeah, I know people are, are using it currently. Can you tell me about some of the, the other uses that people are putting it to? For sure. So I've already you know, touched a little bit on agriculture and mining. In agriculture, we're looking at a lot of stuff along the lines of micro and macronutrients. So being able to tell how much fertilizer a certain part of soil needs based on essentially doing chemical analysis of it from space or from, I guess, a remotely sensed image. Then doing the same for the crop itself, being able to determine how much protein or carbohydrates are in a certain crop for those micronutrients, being able to determine a lot of those things. That's where hyperspectral really excels. Of course, there's multispectral imaging and even with NDVI, which we, you know, we can derive from a lot of color imaging. There's a lot of precision agriculture use cases already solved with those. But hyperspectral definitely takes it further. It takes it a step further with those very hard to track nutrients that can now be found. Similar things can be said uh, in mining, where detecting, uh, of course, you know, we're hyperspectral imaging, we're only capturing surface level data. You know, we're not looking in kilometers deep into the ground to find these minerals. But we're able to see more traces of these minerals, whether they be in clay deposits or they simply be in different soil compositions. And being able to tell that can only be made possible through hyperspectral because now we're able to discern all of these elements from each other. So those are some of the use cases, and uh, as you know, touched on carbon, being able to track that in columns on, of the atmosphere. You need very specific wavelengths to do that. That's where hyperspectral comes in, and the same thing for carbon sequestration and a lot of those kind of applications. I can see a lot of those being useful in terms of a sustainable sustainability angle, excuse me, and importantly from a pay-the-bills angle because you've got to have a business case. I'd like to know about the, the growth of the team currently. What's the size and what sorts of skills are on board to get done what needs doing? At the moment, we're 10 people. A lot of the team is still core technical. Two of us are non-technical, including myself, where we're on the business development side of things. But I think in our team, there's like two different silos. One's very much focused on the opto-mechanical problems, but actually building the optical assemblies and mm -hmm. actually manufacturing the entire hardware. But then there's also a software slash embedded systems silo as well, where we're actually working with a lot of these sensors where 
uh, building our own computing algorithms for the hyperspectral imaging that we're capturing, and then also doing a lot of the onboard systems software development once we are actually at the space. Have you put many um, microsatellites into space so far? No, this is going to be our first one. So as I said, I'm also at the basically at the end of my bachelor degree. So yep. the team itself, we are fairly young and I guess you could say we're pretty inexper inexperienced, but like we're learning from a lot of our partners that we're collaborating with to I guess, do things right. So it is the payload where we're going to be launching our first payload in May of 2023 with different partners that we're working with so that is going to be our first pilot i'd like to know on the, the progress so far on that over the rainbow mission you have two launches planned or, or two payloads at the least tell me about what you've been busy with uh, between getting started on that to now and what what you're doing into the future with those two payloads just a few weeks ago we've delivered our engineering models to the flight providers so an engineering model is essentially just a more of a barely functioning mock-up of the actual imager and uh, that we've delivered to space machines company and the provider that we're going to be launching with so now we're in the process of actually building our flight models basically the ones that are actually going to be flying in orbit so we're hoping to get that done by early november-ish after which we'll be doing essentially a space qualification program where we're taking the imager and then putting it through essentially a shaking and baking process, making sure it survives the conditions during launch and the conditions once it's actually up into orbit. So that's what the uh, next couple of months look like for us. Sure, you've got to make sure it can survive a whole lot of vibration, I'm guessing. Yeah, it, well, especially on the mechanical side of things, we've been doing a lot of like actual load testing and we're doing it very I guess iteratively, where we're doing it a lot on a lot of like 3D printed plastic, and then we're experimenting with a lot of different plastics. We're not actually flying plastic. We're you know like our impale is going to be aerospace grade aluminum, but we're doing that on more I guess comparatively weaker material types to actually you know do a lot of that I guess load testing to see what actually makes it fail. So so far we've been pretty happy with uh, what we've been achieving. Hopefully the flight models will also succeed through that entire test program. Is there a second launch on a, um, a modularity spacecraft, or is, is that some old and dated and therefore inaccurate information that I've seen out there? So we're still in the talks with them to be launching sometime mid next year, but we don't have a current launch booked in with them yet. Okay. Uh, yeah. So yep. at the moment, our first launch right now is just with Space Machine. I appreciate plans change and, and there are old releases that are obsolete out there and that, that happens. Spiral Blue. Um, I, I know, you know, I have a surface knowledge of what they do around edge computing for for space and um, making that information you're collecting, uh, you know, for processing that and making sure you're not using up a whole lot of unnecessary bandwidth when you're collecting stuff and sending it back to Earth. Tell me about how important they are. Yeah, so within hyperspectral, as I've you know, mentioned, we're capturing hundreds of different wavelengths compared to just you know, three red, green, and blue wavelengths, but uh, I guess, quote-unquote, regular satellite imagery. Because we're capturing 100 more wavelengths, we're also generating 100 times the information, 100 times that data. And when we're in space, there's a lot of limitations in terms of how we can actually get that data down. That's where we're using Spiral Blue Sun computing systems to 
do a lot of unprocessing, essentially in terms of compression and also, I guess, removing, I guess, useless data from the, I guess, the raw data that we're capturing from our imagers. One of their uh, computers is actually our main imaging payload. So not only are we doing the a lot of the edge processing stuff, but we're also doing a lot of the core systems operates the entire system's operation on board the same computing platform too, which includes running our capture algorithms, which are, I guess, really core to us in terms of how we actually capture hyperspectral imaging data and how we construct it. That takes up a lot of compute resources as well. So they, uh, right now, based on what we've seen, their computers are basically like the best things that we could be, I guess, attaching our imaging sensors to. And yeah, that uh, partnership with them is crucial to, I guess, just Edge computing is, I guess, crucial to hyperspectral in general, just by, you know, a lot of that compression, a lot of that pre-processing capability that it opens up. Uh, I saw that you you have a goal of 18 satellites in orbit by 2025. Why that number and what will that allow you to do? Yeah, so 18 satellites gives us the capability to image every point on the Earth on a daily basis. That daily cadence opens up a lot of different use cases. So a lot of the customers we're working with right now, they're looking at a lot of weekly use cases, especially in agriculture and more so in mining where they don't need as frequent information. But once we go into the daily processing, it opens up a lot of use cases that we even haven't thought of. Like some of our customers are coming to us with that daily request to be looking at a lot of uh, infrastructure monitoring and then also looking at a lot of it's just metrics for more on the financial side of things, being able to, you know, trade based on satellite imagery data that we're looking to give them as you know, frequently as we can. So that's a more, I guess, you know, a shorter term goal that we're aiming for is to get these eight satellites and that will just give us that daily cadence. Right. That'd be commodities traders wanting to know about grain, perhaps? That's right. That's a part of it. We've also been, you know, looking at a lot of, I guess, environmental monitoring stuff from like more ESG focused traders, being able to track, you know, emissions on a daily basis to do total account, carbon accounting or emissions accounting. But then also things like, you know, counting the number of cars, which is, I guess, more of a general satellite imagery use case. But even looking at that and more, I guess, infrastructure stuff or alongside, you know, insurance and insuring, you know, properties and insuring different infrastructure types as well. One of the big funding announcements in the final months of the last government, and there are quite a few big funding announcements, was um, over a billion dollars for Australia to build its own Earth observation satellites. I know it's a lot of money, but in my opinion, it was sort of overdue as we're using other people's Earth observation satellites and you want to have that stuff as something you're controlling. How important is, you know, my editorialising aside, how important is it, in your view, for Australia to build its own Earth observation satellites? And uh, what does the funding mean for the nation, the space industry, and for you guys? So with space in general, there's a huge focus on sovereign capability. And the reason why there's a huge focus on that is because space is, while it is more and more becoming a uh, commercial domain, it is still primarily a defense slash government use case domain, which is why I guess, you know, it's important for East government to be relying on their own capabilities to be getting a, a lot of this infrastructure set in place. Because even with today's geopolitical climate, you know, there's a lot of I guess, people picking sides and a lot of those things. So that just increases the importance in terms of you know, having your own infrastructure and your own capability to, especially have situational awareness, being able to have a lot of this information being collected from space, whether it be you know local land masses or a lot of uh, even I guess, 
the country's own uh, defense use cases, but also looking at external threats versus at a lot of, I guess, looking at those threats, but then also using that to do a lot of peacekeeping. I guess, you know, Australia plays a huge role in global geopolitics, and that's where, you know, just having our own infrastructures is very important along those lines. But then also for local technology development, we right now, a lot of the participation monopolies are currently based out of the U.S., and that's where a whole lot of focus is at, whether it be Maxar, whether it be Planet Labs, and just having a lot of that technology being developed in-house or even local, uh, locally in Australia just gives a lot more technological edge, even if it's not satellites, even if it's like you know, dual-use technologies that can go further in commercial use cases. So those things are just like really important to be building locally to just a lot of, uh, to have a lot of that self-dependence. That's where we think it's really important to be focusing on that. To stay with politics for a moment, is there anything you'd like to see from the, the new government that would help the space sector flourish in your view? So money is always a great thing. Sure. <laughs> so, of course, even with the previous government, and there's a whole lot of interest in space and the, the awareness around the importance of it has been growing. And we just want to see that continuously happening. We, I guess, even right now, you know, we're currently depending on government support through the AMGC grants and a couple of other things that we're currently relying on. So further, I guess, that funding is pumped into, you know, companies like ours where, you know, we primarily have a commercial use case. That's where it sort of de-risks a lot of technology, especially for once we go out to the private markets to actually raise capital. So that is, especially in like the early stages, uh, that's where we think it's really important, especially with dual use technologies, which you know you have a commercial as well as a more defense focused use case. It's really important for that early de-risking to be done, where I guess you know the market, while the primary private investment markets aren't ready to support that yet, until there's a whole lot of maturity. So that's where, at least from our point of view, where we think you know, the government should has already done and should also con- I guess continue doing a lot of work within. In that early stage, the uh, risking applications and support. Indeed, the technology readiness level, valley of death, as they call it. That's right. It's a bit of a change of pace, but what's what's your supply chain look like, and what are the Australian companies that you're working with? A lot of our supply chain is fairly distributed globally, but a core component of it is in Australia. So we do all of our optical manufacturing within Australia. All of our design work is, of course, you know, done within the company, but then a lot of the actual component manufacturing is done within Australia. Whereas we're working with FileBlue, we're working with Space Machines Company. Space Machines Company is the satellite we're going up on in May. So they're also, the entire bus is being built locally. FileBlue's computers are also being manufactured locally. But there are core components that we are sourcing from outside of Australia especially around semiconductors, where we're working with a lot of sensing technologies that aren't currently being locally manufactured, and more around high-precision optics as well that we're currently sourcing from outside Australia. The other recurring question in this series is, why is it important that Australia have a strong manufacturing ecosystem? You've seen some of it in action and made use of it, uh, you know, getting so far as you have already. What's your point of view on that question? So for us... Having things being made locally, especially post-COVID, where you know delays, six-month delays for things are very common now, especially for bidding for like very specialized equipment, that's made our lives somewhat harder. Um, if it was something you know locally, we could go out and even get it locally manufactured, regardless of how long it would take, it would still be much quicker to do that. And because of that, COVID has definitely shown us how I guess fragile some of our I guess, supply chains are, especially around when it comes to 
uh, same kind of director as Sega Mechanics, we're still, you know, struggling with a lot of those things whenever it comes to buying computers, buying sensors. We're having to, I guess, you know, talk to suppliers to go into stock that they've bought 10 years ago, and we're trying to use legacy equipment to accomplish some of the things that we're doing. That's where we see, you know, that facility has shown how important it is to have things being manufactured locally. Of course, in our case, like my focus is on semiconductors, and that's, you know, a huge research area that even that we're looking at in terms of how we can, you know, even if it's not entire, you know, if it's sensor wafers that are manufacturing locally, but how can we even, you know, manufacture parts of that, whether it just be PCBs or even just small components. So that's where we've seen, you know, things, at least now in the context of our company, how that can really help us achieve what we want to do much quicker. And so uh, lastly, Shoaib, is there anything you'd like to plug while I have you on the line? So just going back to the founding of our company, I think we'd really like to plug the HEX program. So when we were just starting out, of course, as I said, you know, we we were primarily just engineering students and a lot of our background is on the technical end and just building a lot of that business skill set was, uh, I guess, difficult for us. But mm-hmm. that's where we actually were a part of the HEX program and Jim Chia, the CEO of uh, HEX, is also now on our advisory board. Um, so they definitely helped us a lot in terms of building a lot of our commercial jobs, especially along the lines of actually pitching and then uh, having clients, and especially in deep tech, we see where a lot of the focus goes into the technology, not on the commercial side of things. So that definitely you know, helped us build a lot of our this commercial backbone in terms of just the company itself, and that's how we've been able to get a lot of pre-orders for our imagery data, and that's how we've been you know, able to build a lot of our partnerships, a lot of our companies just based on the things that we've learned. And you mentioned the help with pre-orders. Is there anything you'd like to say about what you've achieved on that front so far? Because I understand there was a release put out this week. In fact, that's why we're speaking. Tell us about your pre-orders in closing. Yeah, so currently our company has close to $150 million worth of pre-orders from basically user uh, user stuff for our imagery data. So those pre-orders are split across a lot of focus on climate metrics, but then we're also working with a lot of agriculture and mining companies who are willing to use our imagery data and they're self-committing to our data once it's available. So it's you know, a major milestone for our company to gather that large amount of of interest in our data and I guess the next few years for us are essentially to go out and build things to actually deliver on that demand. Great going for a young company. I feel like we've almost buried the lead in, in uh, mentioning that at the end, but anyway, it's how it goes sometimes. Shoaib, it was very nice to speak to you. Thanks for taking the time and thanks for being on AU Manufacturing Conversations. Likewise, thanks a lot for having me. No worries. No worries.